0: Well, I have a watch like you do, and it is 10 of already, and sermon's not going to be 10 minutes, uh, but we're going to have the Q&A time afterwards because we thought that if there were questions, we wanted to be able to address them, and I will not be offended if you're dozing off and you wanted to go over and get a cup of coffee, even right now. I might be jealous because I can't do that, but uh, if you need to, uh, that's why it's there, and uh, we, uh, God wanted us to. Reflect on some singing, apparently, this morning, and that has been good. Well, we have been going through the book of Psalms. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. But today, we wanted to leave the book of Psalms, just for Sunday, and address what I think is a really important issue for us as a church to be talking about. And that is what the Bible teaches about sexuality and where same-sex fits in there we're going to uh, look back at that long passage that Steve read earlier. And I picked that passage in particular because I don't know if you noticed, but it, it talks about Sodom. If you remember, Sodom was that city in the Old Testament, notorious for its homosexual practice. And Ezekiel there reflects on that. And there are some surprising lessons that we can learn for our own life and our own thinking from that. But before I get to Ezekiel 16, I want to lay some groundwork that will explain why this topic and this passage is important for us. And to do that, begin by, I want to give you a few scenarios to consider, okay? So think about these situations. A teenage boy begins to realize that he's different than the other teenage boys he knows. All of them are talking about the features of the girls they are attracted to, but this boy is thinking about the features of the guys he's attracted to. And he's confused and afraid. And he comes to you with sincere questions, seeking help. What would you say? Or suppose a a family you know, a mother and daughter, and uh, the daughter rejects her mother's love, rejects her mother's discipline. She goes out deep into drugs and sleeps with many men. And this grieves her mother's heart. But then she leaves the drugs and everything else and gets a good job and becomes a committed lesbian. And now her mother is devastated. And she's so ashamed, she doesn't want to go to church. How would you talk with that mother? Or let me tell you an experience I had. I was at a community event in Greenbelt, and there happened to be a number of people in the gay and lesbian community there. One man kind of got me off a little bit by myself and said, so, I'm guessing that a Baptist pastor doesn't have many homosexual friends. What do you think of all this? That's what he said. What, What would you think I should have said in response? What should my response have been? Or another true story, Ian told me last week, uh, he, a couple of years ago at the Labor Day booth, you know the ministry we do every year down at the Greenbelt Center, a woman came up to Ian and said to Ian, so, have you guys done any same-sex weddings at your church yet? And Ian, with his you know, big welcoming smile that he always gives, uh, said, no, we haven't, and we don't really have any plans to do that. And then she said, oh, but this is Greenbelt, so just you wait. What would you say? What do you think about that? What do you think about that, that narrative of, it's coming, it's coming? Well, let me begin uh, by giving you a brief argument from Scripture for why the Bible affirms the definition of marriage that it does and why it does not condone homosexual behavior. So briefly, that's what we're going to start off with. First of all, although the Bible doesn't say it very often, it's really clear that homosexual behavior is not according to God's plan. Uh, the book of the law, Leviticus 18, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Romans 1 calls homosexual lust a dishonorable passion, exchanging what is natural for what is unnatural. The consensus from all these passages in the Bible, though there aren't too many of them, is that homosexual behavior is contrary to the built-in design of creation. And if we look back at creation, it's not hard to see why that is. So think with me about Genesis 1. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. I'll give you a brief overview here, okay? whole Bible in just a few seconds. Genesis 1, what do we have? God created the heavens and the earth, the day and the night, the land and the water. What am I doing here? I'm showing that... Creation is structured around complementary pairs that work together. See that? Different things coming together to make creation what it is. And then God makes the crown of his creation male and female. God does not create generic humans, some of which have some features and others have different features. No, he creates men and women. The ultimate complementary pair and then he unites them together in marriage. And then, well, if you remember, there's quite a bit of drama in the way that God does this. God makes Adam, and then he says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. And then God makes the woman, right? No, he doesn't. You read it carefully. He then tells Adam to go and name all the animals. might make more sense to make the helper first before he gives him that task, but no, he doesn't. He has a point in that. He wants Adam to see that out of all these animals, There's no helper suitable for him. No complementary pair. So then God creates the woman. She is like him. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Like him enough that they can have a special relationship. But she's not the same. She's not a man. She's a woman. Here's the point. Sameness is not the narrative thread that weaves all of creation together. Different things coming together is the narrative thread that connects all of creation. And that narrative thread takes us all the way to the end of the Bible. Because in the very last chapter, what do we see? We see the new heavens and the new earth. Once again, complementary pair. And we see the marriage of Christ and the church. You see, the reason why that narrative thread of different things coming together is woven throughout Scripture is that God's ultimate purpose in everything is to unite himself to his people. And that is not a union of sameness. No, no. Because we are very unlike God. But you see, that's the most amazing thing about God. He can do even that. God's greatest power in the Bible is seen not in his creating or destroying or simply saving. No. It's his ability to unite. He unites his son with true human flesh. He unites people, sinful people, to his son that we may know him in the most loving, intimate union imaginable. And see, marriage is a picture of that union. The fact that in the very beginning, God unites two different kinds of people together in marriage is not an arbitrary choice on God's part, no. That reflects the very essence of who God is and what he's planning to do. By the way, it's interesting that even even unbelievers recognize this in some way. Uh, And oddly, that comes out when they argue for the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. I was reading a book recently by a woman who was trying to make an argument, basically, for why gay is good, and why we should accept same-sex marriage and accept gay and lesbian people into all spheres of our life. And, And here's the essence of what she said. I'll summarize it for you. She said, it's good for us to embrace people who are different than we are who are not wired in the same way. It's good for us to let them into our lives in the most intimate way. For when we know people who are profoundly different than we are, we become better people. And will experience a greater degree of intimacy knowing a person who is different than if they were just the same as we are. Now, she's intending that as an argument for why we should embrace gay marriage is good. But when I read that, I thought, you know, I think that's actually a really compelling argument for why marriage ought to be between a man and a woman. You see, marriage between a man and a woman affirms diversity at the very deepest level. Real real marriage is building on diversity. You see, by knowing somebody who is different than you, you are then more vulnerable. It requires more sacrifice, and it creates an even greater degree of intimacy because. You have to depend on that other person to know and love them. By the way, I was thinking about that this week and it made me excited about my own marriage. It's great that my wife is different than me. She's not wired the same. She looks at things differently. That is good. That is by God's design. Single people here, you don't need to find a spouse who is exactly like you so that they'll be easier to love. No. Make sure the person is a believer. That's of course a a clear command in the Bible, but it's okay if they're different than you are. And learning to love them is a good thing. Now, what I've just given you there is an argument from the Bible why marriage is between a man and a woman and why God does not condone same-sex relationships. I think what that does is gives us a beautiful picture of what marriage is. And I think we should uphold that picture as beautiful. We should extol the value of marriage as it is and what God designed it to. And even if your marriage has not been good and beautiful for you, if it ended tragically, or after years of wanting it, you've not found it, you should still uphold marriage as good and beautiful. Because if you are a believer, you will experience what marriage ultimately points to, your relationship with Jesus. And Jonathan Lehman, in his talk this past Wednesday, gave the example of marriage being like a a road sign. You know, one of those signs that say, this many miles to Chicago? said, don't mistake the sign for the real thing. The sign is a pointer. Think about what might happen if you're driving to Chicago and you, you miss the road sign because there's a big truck in the way and you can't see it. Well, you might have a bit more difficulty at some point going there because you don't have the comfort of knowing how far away you are. But you think you're going to miss out on anything when you get to the city? Are you going to be disappointed because you didn't get to experience the road sign on the way there? No, not at all. We all need to affirm the beauty of marriage because all believers will participate in what it ultimately is. But as beautiful as a picture of marriage is, as beautiful as that argument for why marriage is what it is, and by the way, when we make that argument for why marriage is the way it is, we should make it in such a way that marriage seems beautiful. It's not just about disaffirming things. It's about affirming what God intended, which is beautiful. Anyway, As beautiful as that picture is, we need to say more. Let me give you one more scenario that demonstrates why it's important that we also say more than just that, what I've said. In most churches in the world, and not just right now, probably throughout all of history, there are believers who struggle with same-sex attraction. Genuine Christians can feel attracted to somebody of the same sex. They didn't choose it. It's just what they feel. Now, they're not perfect, of course, but if they're real Christians, they're not giving themselves to those desires. They know objectively about what the Bible says about them, and they love Jesus more than their sin. So they honor him. Now, you might wonder, how can a Christian experience an unnatural desire? But if you wonder that, just think about your own desires. We all want things that God says are not good. Because of the fall, our desires are distorted. And I'm willing to admit that part of that could be our own biology. Sometimes people, because of their biology, are more prone to alcoholism. That could be in this case as well. The fall affects so many different things. I was It's kind of like this. I was putting a puzzle together with my kids last night. This was a difficult puzzle to put together for two reasons. One, it was one of those where you you kind of color the puzzle pieces, except my kids colored them all before they put the puzzle together. So you couldn't tell from the colors what lined up with what. And, and, and not only that, uh, the pieces were warped. So even the ones that were supposed to fit together didn't actually fit together. And as I was sort of like racking my head to put the pieces together, I was thinking I'm not awake enough to do this. But, but they actually were able to do it just fine, and I wasn't. But anyway, as I was struggling to do this, it, it dawned on me, that's kind of what we are like. We're like these broken puzzle pieces that don't like completely fit. Sure, it would be really nice if our desires matched our reasoning, matched reality, matched God's word. But it's not like that. There's brokenness. One day we will stand before Jesus, and then it will all fit together. What we want and feel and see and know to be true will all perfectly go here. But until then, just like with that puzzle. There are gaps. And within those gaps, some Christians struggle intensely with same-sex attraction. So here's what we need to do as a church, and this is why I'm preaching on this message, which is what I feel most urgently about. It is not enough simply for us to faithfully articulate the definition of marriage and be able to explain it. We need to do that, but we need to do more. We need to be a place where we can love one another in our various forms of brokenness. We need to be a place where somebody can struggle with same-sex attraction and find help and real community and real friendship. I remember uh, uh, talking to a believer, this was many, many years ago, uh, talking to a believer who had sexual temptation very, very different than mine. He was a friend and he was actually in a committed marriage. But whenever I talked with him, He something just seemed like there was something he wasn't telling me, and then finally he shared with me what his daily struggle with sin was. And and at first I was surprised how, on one hand, very different that seemed than my daily struggle with sin. But over weeks of conversation, he opened up, realized that at the end of the day, we're a lot more alike than we were different, and we could repent of sin together. See, the key for what, for for becoming this kind of community, the key for it all is that we practice repentance. That we practice repentance. Now, that's a very different solution than what many people would give you. See, many people would say, what we need is just to be a welcoming, affirming community where you can come and be whoever you want to be, and that's okay. But friends, that's, as Jonathan Lehman explained Wednesday, that's a faulty different definition of love. It's not loving to affirm somebody in, in a less than uh, way that God has made them. Now, many people adopt that approach because they see the ugliness of a self-righteous attitude. We don't want to go there either. But the way to avoid that is not by saying, okay, everybody's just okay. The way to say that is rather nobody's okay. And we're all repenting together. Uh, that's why we put that quote in the bulletin each week. When we learn this uh, pattern perfectly, then we'll take it out. But until then, we kept it in. The quote in the bulletin that says, This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. We are not yet what we will be, but we are pressing toward it. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That quote is about repentance. Repentance is not simply for people who are doing those really, really bad things, and we need to stop them from doing those things and get them to be more like us. No. Repentance is for everyone. The mature believer who has walked with Christ for 50 years needs to repent daily. They are on the road of repentance. They will not leave that road until they reach glory. Okay, with all that in mind, that was the introduction. Don't worry, the sermon actually is short. We will now turn to Ezekiel 16 because it's a passage about repentance. And repentance is the key for building the community where we can all find hope. Now, this passage is structured, I'm mostly going to refer to it, but it's not bad to have it open. This passage is structured around a parable, or an allegory, you could say, of a really, really, really unfaithful spouse. God personifies the whole people of God as if they are his wife. And this is an accurate way for God to refer to his people, because God is in a covenant relationship with his people. A covenant relationship that requires faithfulness, both on God's part and on the people's part. A lot like a marriage, right? And in this parable, we see that God is good and loving and kind. And that God being good and loving and kind makes his wife beautiful. That's like that song we sang. My song is Love Unknown. They were the loveless. God showed them love and they became lovely. But they, but she, used her loveliness to do what? Attract other lovers and to give herself to anyone and everyone that she could pay to get that would come sleep with her. The language in that section is graphic, explicit, and shocking and offensive. If you were listening, and if you're not too familiar with the Bible, you probably were thinking, is this really in the Bible? <laughs> and it is. Why is such a graphic, sexually explicit, violent language in the Bible? What's it doing there? Well, here's what it's doing there. It's telling us the true nature of our sin against God. It is shocking, graphic, violent, and offensive. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, but but I haven't done anything that violent and offensive to God, have I? I haven't been unfaithful like this. Well, in this parable, the unfaithfulness of the wife is the idolatry of the people. You see that right there in verse 36. Lovers are idols. That's what the wife has given herself to. That's what the people have given themselves to. And idols are pretend gods that people set up and treat them as if they were the one true God. They treat them as if they were really sources of blessing, really means of salvation. And they go to these gods to get what they can only get from the one true God. And friends, what's sad is that you and I do this all the time. The New Testament makes it clear that all sin is idolatry. When you lie in order to get someone to like you, it's because you're looking for the approval of somebody else for something that only God can give you. You're looking to be accepted before them, and if I can only be accepted before them, then I'd be okay. God is the one who needs to be in that place. When I'm out with my family, and I should be just spending time with them, but yet I check my email, or at least I'm very tempted to, It's because I'm looking for something outside to make me happy rather than resting in the reality God's given me right then and there. When I'm moody or grumpy, I'm putting my trust in me having control of the people and things around me rather than God having control of the people and things around me. And I'm saying that my will for my life is more important than God's will for my life. All sin is idolatry. Now you might be thinking, okay, I get it. I get it. I commit idolatry all the time. But why is that really such a big deal before God? Well, let me tell you why. In marriage, you keep the covenant with your spouse by, by committing to share sexual intimacy only with your spouse, right? That's what you promise. You'll forsake all others. I say that up here because I've had people promise that to me to each other right here. I've witnessed it. That's what happens. Well, the way we keep our covenant relationship with God is by worshiping Him and Him alone. That's how we keep our covenant relationship with God. Before God, no one should have the priority in our lives that He does. No one else do we look for ultimate refuge other than Him. No one else do we give our ultimate allegiance to. Only God does. Only God do we give Him. Do we give that. Idolatry. The point here is that idolatry does to our relationship with God what adultery does to marriages. It destroys it. It destroys it. Do, um, adultery is the biggest offense you can give your spouse, isn't it? It's saying to your spouse, I don't want to be in an exclusive relationship with you. Idolatry does the same thing to God. Idolatry says to God, I don't really want you to be my God. I think I can do better with someone else. I don't appreciate what you've done for me in bringing me in a relationship with you. I'd rather be in a relationship with something else. That's what idolatry says to God. And the author in this passage, Ezekiel, uses such shocking and offensive language to get our attention to how serious our idolatry is. And notice the consequence of idolatry. The unfaithful wife is hacked to pieces. And that act of violence drives home this point. Idolatry will destroy you. Why does it destroy you? Because the idols that people give themselves to are not gracious and compassionate lovers. No. They're cruel dictators. And they make promises of joy and fulfillment. Oh, come to me and you'll be happy. But those are false promises. If you make acceptance before other people your God, How do you feel when you're not accepted? It feels like you're hacked to pieces, doesn't it? If you make success your God, what happens when you fail? Does that God of yours have much grace and mercy and compassion? If you say, even if you don't voice it, if you think, I can be a person worth living if I succeed at X, and you don't succeed, you're devastated. If your God is your beauty, your body's attractiveness, It's going to happen when you age. As one person said, you will die a thousand deaths before the real one. If your God is your intellect, you will always feel stupid. You'll always feel like you're a fraud waiting to be found out. And when you see somebody smarter than you, you'll be tempted to despair. Our idols destroy us. They hack us to pieces. And God's judgment on his people is, for a time, and only for a time, to leave them to the consequence of their idolatry. See, if we are given to idolatry, then the very best thing for us, if we're not going to repent and come to God right away, is that our idols would fail us so that we won't trust in them. And just so you know, heads up, I've prayed for all of us this week, earnestly, that our idols would fail us. So if you start experiencing some bad things, just don't want to know, you want to know who to blame. That's I'm telling you that on the front end. But, but if idolatry is as bad as this passage says it is, don't we want it to be exposed in our life so we can pre- repent of it? Wouldn't we rather have our life fall apart than have it seemingly hold together, but be built on something that is offending God? Okay, so let me remind you why we're talking about all this. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about homosexuality. Well, well we're getting to that, and we are, kind of. The point I'm making is that it's not enough just to give a biblical defense for the definition of marriage and why homosexuality is wrong we must become a genuine Christian community that can care for each other in their brokenness. And a genuine Christian community is one when we are all repenting. And the way to repent is to recognize how odious our idols are before God so that we want to leave them. Repentance isn't just for the people doing those really, really bad things. It's for all of us. And only when we recognize that can we truly care for others. Now, It's in this context that Ezekiel brings up Sodom. And God tells his people, the nation of Israel, that uh, exactly what Sodom did wrong. Look at this in verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, so here it is. Here's what Sodom, that notorious city, did wrong. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now, keep in mind, this is Sodom. This is the city committed to homosexual activity. This is the place where two angels came. Angels look like men. And the men in the city wanted to rape them. Sodom would make the most progressive city in the world blush because of its sin. But did you notice that in this description there, verse 49, there isn't any description of their sexual sin at all? All it says is they did an abomination. That's referring to their sexual sin. But he doesn't go into any detail about it. Well, some might say, well, that's just because the author wants to be discreet. Well, were you listening to the rest of the section? This author is not caring about being discreet. He's making a point. What point is he making? His point is. That Jerusalem's sin, the sin of God's people, their idolatry is worse than Sodom's. That's what he says clearly in verse 48. Sodom didn't do what Jerusalem did. Sodom was not as bad as Jerusalem. Jerusalem's sin was far worse. And my guess is that that would have come to the people of Jerusalem as a shocking message. And that's because all of us are prone to think that our sin is not as bad as others we like to find people who are sinning in more disgusting ways than we are so we don't have to feel as bad about our own. And it would be tempting for the people in Jerusalem to see their idolatry and say, yeah, it's not right, but at least we're not Sodom. Well, in order to wake them up from the delusion of their self-righteousness, he reserves, the most God reserves, the most graphic, vivid language for their own sin to show how offensive it is before him. friends we need to apply that to our own lives. We have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned to confront sin out there or sin in here and sin in here? Where are we trying to confront sin the most? Friends, we need to get the order right. If we get the order right, then we're not going to appear self-righteous because we won't be self-righteous. And if we get the order right, then when we are confronting sin in others, we will be simply telling one repenting sinner how they can be reconciled to God. We will be a community that repents together. Now, there's another reason why there's no sexual language describing the sin of Sodom. And that's because God actually wants to show the people that they have a whole lot more in common with Sodom than they'd like to admit. See, what God does here is he's showing them the calls and progression of their sexual sin. Look at at the calls here. Verse 49, Sodom had pride. See that there? Pride is the idolatry of self. Pride is thinking too highly of yourselves. It is thinking that we deserve various things. And it's saying that we can live without God. Pride says that we can make the rules because we're that important. There is a clear connection between pride and any lust. The more highly we think of ourselves the more it legitimatizes for us our own desires. You see, a truly humble person, if they want something, will at some point ask, is this thing that I want really good? And do I deserve to actually have it? A pride person won't ask that. A pride person also thinks he or she can live independently of God. So, first connection is pride. It also says here, that they had excess food and prosperous ease. In other words, they ate well and they were lazy. They had no self-discipline. They were, as one book says, amusing themselves to death. And one author describes it this way. Undisciplined taste will always lead to egregious sin, slowly and almost imperceptibly. Are you starting to identify with Sodom yet? I am. Also. They didn't help the poor and the needy. Now, that's really interesting that it's on that list, because this isn't just a list of all the things they did wrong. No, this is a list of what caused their behavior. God gives us opportunities to help the poor and the needy, not just for the sake of the poor and the needy, but because that's good for us. We need to be caring about others and ourselves so that we don't get self-centered. Not helping the poor and needy is what led them into more sin, and that will lead us into more sin too. One great writer, Rosaria Butterfield, writes the following to describe this situation. Pride combined with wealth leads to idleness because we falsely feel that God just wants us to have fun. If unchecked, this sin will grow into entertainment-driven lust. If unchecked, This sin will grow into hardness of heart that declares other people's problems no responsibility or care of your own. If unchecked, we will become bold in our sin and feel entitled to live selfish lives fueled by the twin values of our culture, acquiring and achieving. See, this passage doesn't put Sodom's sin in graphic terms because he wants to go even deeper and look at the cause of that sin. And he wants to do that so that we can all relate. Now, let me be really clear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that if you're here this morning and experience some sense of same-sex attraction, it's because you're being prideful and living an undisciplined, lazy life. I'm not saying that. As I said earlier, same-sex attraction can come out of nowhere. It may have some biological roots. I don't know. It may come from a variety of factors. However, giving in to those desires, even a little bit, and building an identity on those desires, well, that's a different story. What leads us to give into same-sex sin will be pride, lack of discipline, lack of concern for those who are around us. But friends, isn't that the same thing that leads us giving, to give into any sin? Uh, Rose, Rosaria Butterfield describes the point of Ezekiel 16 very well. She says this, if you indulge in the sins of pride, wealth, entertainment lust, lack of mercy, and lack of discretion, you will find yourself deep in sin. And the type of sin may surprise you. So friends, what's the best thing we can do to help our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction? The answer is to cultivate a culture in which repenting of sins, of pride, laziness, and selfishness is normal. That's just what we do. We repent of those things regularly. You see, one of the problems that we can easily fall into is developing a culture of acceptable sins. Acceptable sins are things that, yeah, we know that they're wrong, but it's okay to struggle with them, which means it's okay to have them living in our lives. Those are things like pride, irritability, being a, having a quick temper, gossip. For some people, it's, it's uh, heterosexual lust. But this passage teaches us that there is no acceptable sin. And furthermore, those things that we think are acceptable sins have a direct connection to other things that we think are not. So rather than just talking and warning people about the sins that are unacceptable, let's start repenting of all of our sins. And if we do that, we'll be holier people. And we'll be able to relate to people who struggle with many things that are very different than what we do. Now friends, how do we do that? The answer, very briefly, is the gospel. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. Was Jesus tempted to same-sex attraction? No indication that he was. Jesus was tempted towards pride. The devil took him up to see all the kingdoms of the world and said, If you bow down to me, all of these can be yours. You see, the temptation for Jesus to get the kingdom without going through the cross was very real for him, and yet he resisted. He obeyed his father instead. The devil tempted Jesus with abundance of food, turned these stones into bread, but he didn't do it. He remained disciplined to the call of God in his life. Jesus understands what our temptations is like. And he doesn't think us weird or strange for having them. And yet, because he never sinned, he is able to help us in and through them. He gives us the same spirit that he had to help him fight temptation to us, to help us fight temptation. So, Friends, draw near to Jesus. Because drawing near to Jesus fights pride. It fights undisciplined behavior. It fights selfishness. Because when we see Jesus giving himself for us, we are motivated to give ourselves in love for others. Let us cultivate a culture that does that regularly. And love is actually the theme that runs all throughout Ezekiel 16. You know what God does to his unfaithful wife? He takes her back. He makes atonement for her. Jesus' death on the cross is that atonement. Jesus dies for the unfaithfulness of his spouse. Why? so that he can have her and be in close union with her, with us. Well, friends, when we see that great love, that makes us want to love him more. That purifies our hearts, giving us real motive to say no to any sin and love him above anything else because we see so clearly that he is worthy of our love.